someone um, left me a note asking me to talk about my father, and it seemed um, to fit into the subject of this talk. He was um, a tall man, six foot two and a half, six foot three, and we were we were born Jewish. His father actually was um, a socialist and uh, a Jewish activist in Russia, and for that was imprisoned and escaped prison. Went to first to Argentina and then to South Africa to look for a land where he could live without persecution. And so he provided a background of, of at least political tolerance that my father grew up in. My father became an activist when he was a student in South Africa and after the war came back and became very politically involved along with my mother in fighting apartheid. They, they were part of the group that were working and then went underground that became the embryo of the Af African National Congress. And um, they organized bus boycotts and different, actually, things that we wouldn't even consider revolutionary, like teaching Africans to read and write, which was illegal in the townships, African miners. Um, so they were both arrested. They had really dedicated their lives. It, the the um, primary focus of their lives was the struggle because things were so bad in South Africa that at least for them it became impossible to live in that state of intolerance and persecution without really becoming active. And becoming active automatically meant becoming a target of the police state. So we were watched. We had numerous police raids. People who visited us were harassed by the police. Um, my mother's family, who were a little less radical than we were, wouldn't visit us because they were so harassed by the police for coming to see us. So um, they were imprisoned and in the Emergency Act of 1960 where um, the state was given powers to imprison people without trial. And when they were let out, they were tipped off that they were going to be rearrested again. And so they went into hiding, and it became apparent that if we all remained in South Africa, they would not be able to see us because uh, we, the children, were being watched continually by the police. So they made a deal with the police to give up their rights of citizenship and they signed an affidavit saying that they would leave South Africa and never return under penalty of death. And so we left South Africa as stateless refugees and went to Israel because that was the only country we knew that would automatically let us in because we were Jewish. Israel didn't really work out. It was like. Um, jumping from the pan into the fire. Is that the expression, from the pan into the kettle into the pan, or whatever it is? Frying <laughs> pan into the fire. And so we left, and I flew to London, and at, the, at Heathrow Airport in London, asked for political asylum. And um, 
we, we the kids were, had been re really um, given very specific lines to say when the customs official was asking my parents questions. Oh, I don't have anywhere to live. Please let us in. We were pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and we were very lucky because uh, the customs official let us in and so began our life in England. My parents in the first few years were still quite active um, um, smuggling this and that and being pretty active about their politics and gradually as things actually got worse in South Africa, my father lost faith. Until in the, in the 70s, he wasn't doing anything at all and felt deeply disillusioned with the political struggle that he had participated in and the political struggle in South Africa. He felt that there was no role that he could play anymore in the, in the liberation struggle. And in some ways, that, that, um, that context changed our lives from one where political activism had been such a center to one of um, uh, comfort. Our house started to get a little nicer. We got better furniture. My parents started to collect beautiful paintings. There, there was a sort of transition as there was less and less faith in what had been such an important part of their lives. So, so um, the space surrounding us changed into more and more comfort. Their, their jobs became more and more important. They earned more money and they now um, live quite comfortably. When Mandela came back into power, he invited all those people who had been unable to go back to go back. And in my 70s, in their 70s, my parents decided to go back to South Africa. <clears throat> I tell the story because for me, my father's initial faith in what he was doing had such a deep impact on our lives, his vision for freedom and his faith in it. And then his loss of faith had a deep impact on our lives as well. And I think of the Dalai Lama and I think of the tremendous faith he has and the fact that actually the situation in Tibet is getting worse, not better, that the Chinese are really influxing the Tibetan population with thousands and thousands of, of um, soldiers and Chinese um, farmers and artisans. And that really it seems that the intention of the Chinese is to destroy Tibetan culture as we know it. And yet the Dalai Lama has faith. And so I wonder where faith comes from. If it doesn't come from an external situation, where does it come from? What happens if we have faith in an external situation and that changes or doesn't bear fruition according to our vision. 
Where really should we put our faith? Last night, Eric read his famous disclaimer that he reads before every Dharma talk, <laughs> which <laughs> asks us not to believe in anything that we might hear, be it from traditional sources, be it from teachers, from culture at large, from um, um, a lineage that goes back thousands of years. So where actually do we place our faith? Or where does faith arise from? How is it cultivated? Does it rest on any one thing? Does our faith here rest on any one thing? Do we have faith when we have a good meditation experience? And then do we lose faith when we don't? Do we have faith when things are going well? And unlike the Dalai Lama and like my father, do we lose faith when they aren't going well? And is that really faith? And if it isn't, what is faith? Do we have faith in the Buddha's awakening process? Is that why we're here? That we believe that there was something that the Buddha discovered and that in that process of discovery, in the awakening he had and in the insight he saw in his awakening, do we believe that there's something about that that should justifiably elicit our faith? Is, is that why we're here? I mean, I don't know. I'm asking you. <laughs> if it is why we're here, if there is something that we think warrants faith in these teachings, what is it? What are some of the critical points that warrant that faith? When the Buddha first, when he first, in the first stage of his, his uh, final awakening, or his only awakening, we could say, he saw, first of all, all his past lives. Then he saw the arising and passing of, of all beings. He saw the coming into being and the death of beings in that cycle that has happened for millions of years. And then and he had insight into the ending of suffering. So we don't even really have to believe the first two to know that in his awakening he saw that there was suffering, and he saw that there was an ending to suffering. When we look at that, because really, in a way, that seems the crux of what we're doing here, is acknowledging suffering and also trying for each of us inside of ourselves to find what constitutes the ending of suffering. When, when we look at that relationship, we find something primary. We find something at the core of life. We actually find a law of life that is fundamental to these teachings and fundamental to the ending of suffering. 
and that is that there is a causal relationship that exists. That is to say that when this arises, that arises. To put it in another way, what we're saying is that what happens to us, the good and the bad, is not a random series of events, but that there is actually a causal relationship happening. And if there wasn't, there wouldn't be any point to doing what we're doing. It is only because there is a causal relationship that there is some point to, doing what, to do what we're doing. What he said is that when certain factors, mental qualities, are cultivated in the mind, they bring about a transformation. That is really the heart of these teachings. That we can cultivate certain factors and that the law of the mind and body say that when those factors come into balance, deep transformation, the deepest transformation can occur where suffering is relieved. Which factors, which factors do we cultivate that brings about this transcendence? He said we cultivate what is wholesome. We cultivate factors which are wholesome and we let go or we do not give energy to we do not identify with the factors that are not wholesome. Now, if we didn't believe this, there would be no point sitting here slogging the way we're slogging. <laughs> and the Buddha said, it is this law that is a law that we can have absolute faith in because it always works. Because it always works. There is nothing that that mitigates, that undercuts the power of this law. That is that positive, wholesome factors can be cultivated and that when they reach fruition, a transcendence or a, the deepest transformation happens where our suffering is relieved. And this is really good news for us. It is good news, isn't it? Because if this wasn't true, we would, each one of us here, be, in, be imprisoned. There would be nowhere to go. There would be nothing to do, right? There would be nothing to do. The good news is that there actually is something that we can do. We can't do it in the past. The Buddha said, we can't do it in the future. It means we can do it in each moment. That's why we keep saying, come back to the moment, because there's no other way to cultivate these positive qualities. There is no other way to let go of the unwholesome qualities unless we come into the moment and see and see their arising, and see in that, in that point of arising whether we want to meet that arising with our intention to bring about positive qualities. So 
We have, we have inherited in each moment particular conditions that have come from our past, right? We know that, right? We're sitting, we're sitting, and we experience something that we don't have direct control over, right? Pain, pain in the buttocks. We, in the next moment, we might experience joy. In the next moment, frustration. In the next boredom. In each moment, that moment is made up of factors that have come from the conditions of, of the past, have come from a whole series of conditionings that manifest in each moment in a particular way. Right now, right this very minute, what you're feeling is the result of past conditions. Why it's so important to be in the moment is that you have the power, we have the power, to meet that moment with positive, wholesome mental qualities. And the more we meet each moment, the more we meet conditions in each moment with positive mental qualities, we build those positive mental qualities up and they arise more and more in the mind because there is a relationship, the relationship being what, what we intend will produce results, and that result eventually brings about the deepest transformation of suffering. So when I think about my father and where he lost his faith, it was because he didn't really understand where transformation comes from. So I want to back off and I want to check in. Are you following me so far? Is there anyone who isn't? Because I don't want to go on if what I'm saying doesn't make any sense. He didn't understand that it was in his power, that it wasn't just outside, that it was in his power to cultivate positive mental qualities. And the places where we get confused and where he got confused is that in each moment we're working with two factors. We're working with the conditions we find ourselves in, pain, joy, boredom, um, sickness, health, whatever. In each moment certain factors arise and then our intention to meet those factors. And it is in our intention and what we want to manifest that we create our future. It's really good news because it's like saying, wow, we really have the power. We really have the power to cultivate a mind that can transform itself. What are some of the positive factors that we can cultivate? Where's my list? <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> I can't find it, but I know most of them. <laughs> Generosity, morality, that is the wish to live skillfully without harming. Renunciation, letting go, 
letting go of what brings suffering primarily, that's what renunciation means. Patience, we've talked about that. Mindfulness, concentration, effort, energy, perseverance, wisdom. Did I say mindfulness? Mindfulness, that there should be 12, there were 12. Any of those qualities are qualities that actually bring about happiness, both when we bring them in because one of their qualities is happiness, and also because they can bring about lasting happiness. That's one of the attributes of the wholesome mental qualities. There's also calm, the seven factors of enlightenment. There's calm and tranquility. There's also faith in what are called the five powers or the five faculties. All these qualities, and we know them intuitively already, don't we? We know them intuitively already that these qualities that I've mentioned are qualities that bring happiness and can bring lasting happiness. The unwholesome qualities like greed, anger, and hatred do not bring about happiness, lasting happiness. Why? Why? Because if, if the invitation is about cultivating positive qualities that bring happiness, what is it about the qualities that are unwholesome that the Buddha says don't bring about happiness? What is it about them? Hmm? Not about the present. Not about the present, yes, yes. They're not about the present. Mm-hmm. What else? What, what, are some of the, what are some of the critical ingredients about what brings suffering? Yes, attachment, yes. They produce clinging. Think about it for a moment. We talked about it in our small groups. What happens when you cling to an object? What happens when you're clinging to an object? What's going to happen? Hmm? You contract, yes, yes. Very unpleasant experience. You're contracted. What else? Conditional happiness. happiness. You're locating the source of your happiness outside of yourself. Even if it's inside of yourself in an experience, what happens when you contract around an object in greed is that you lose all context in your desire for wanting the object. You actually become a victim to the object or to the experience, wanting happiness, when we are attached to wanting happiness. We are, we are projecting onto a thought, an experience, or an object, our happiness, and imprisoning ourselves, tying ourselves down to this object. We actually disempower ourselves. We make ourselves a victim. We're doing that all the time. We are victimizing ourselves all the time. It's really amazing. Because we believe that something 
in either our process, like, like um, wanting to have a pleasant experience or a person or wanting something, uh, some particular car or job or whatever, you know how we are, we get attached all the time. Whatever it is, we are taking some phenomena in the life stream and projecting our, our, our happiness onto it. We become tied to it, we become a victim to it, we become blind to everything else. We often do unskillful things because we want something so much. I mean, the war that Eric so eloquently talked about yesterday was from greed and hatred, wanting so strongly something and not wanting something so strongly that the mind gets so contracted that you are willing to kill and murder to get your object. But most of all, the Buddha said, that those objects are unskillful because they cannot bring us lasting happiness, because everything is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. And that the energy of attachment and aversion does not see that. The energy of attachment and aversion holds onto an object, and in the process of holding on, makes it seem permanent, and we do not see its impermanence. I've got this really great um, poem from um, a courtesan called Anna um, Ambapali, who lived during the Buddha's time, and Ambapali was considered ecstatically beautiful, so beautiful that men would see her in the street and, and just fall in love with her immediately. And she had all these courtesans. You know, that is, she was so beautiful that um, um, she wasn't considered like a prostitute, but, but she was supported um, because of her beauty by different um, suitors and men, and, and, and she had sex with them. <laughs> and she met the Buddha and she was deeply moved by the Buddha's teaching and she became a nun and this is what she says <laughs> once my hair was black like the color of bees alive, curly now it's dry like bark fibers of hemp I'm getting old this is true, I tell you the truth <laughs> Covered with flowers, my head was fragrant like a perfumed box. Now, because of old age, it smells like dog's fur. <laughs> Thick like a grove, it used to be beautiful. Ends parted by comb and pin. Now it's thin, I'm telling the truth. This was a head with fine pins once, decorated with gold, plated, so beautiful. Now I'm bald. My eyebrows were like crescents, exquisitely painted by artists. Now, because of old age, they droop down with wrinkles. Ah, oh, I'm telling the truth. My eyes used to be shiny, brilliant as jewels. Now they don't look so good. My nose was like a delicate peak. Now it's a long pepper. This <laughs> the scarecrow is telling the truth. My earlobes once, can you believe it, were like well-fashioned bracelets. Now they're heavy with creases. Sweet was my singing like the cuckoo in the grove. Now my voice cracks and falters. Hear it, these words are true. My neck used to be soft like a well-rubbed conch shell. 
now it bends broken. My feet used to be elegant like shoes of soft cotton wool. Now they are cracked and wrinkled. This hag speaks true. Once I had the body of a queen. Now it's lowly, decrepit, an old house, plaster falling off, sad but true. Greed and hatred are fed by the delusion that things are permanent and unchanging, that the incredible ways we take physical beauty to be important in our culture, don't we? I mean, God, we are all obsessed with it. I can't tell you the number of times I find myself looking in the mirror. Oh, look at that stomach. Oh, not bad today. And I watch myself, you know, having that kind of look of looking, you know, <laughs> and 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 it's and it's fed by this, and it really is fed by this underlying idea that this this model of beauty that we desire so much is not going to change, even though intellectually, of course, I know it, and even though in some way I see it, that the attachment in some way holds the denial in place that this hugely important thing, being physically attractive, is in some way not going to fade, in some way it's going to last, in some way how I'm going to be attractive is going to bring me happiness and that in some way that's going to be lasting. It's wonderful, it's really wonderful to see because we know, we know, and that's the beauty of this practice. We know, and even if we don't know it inside, intellectually we know that we are going to become old hags. <laughs> we are going to become decrepit. <laughs> it's tr- this is true for every single object we hold in greed or that we push away in hatred. One of, the, one of the most beautiful qualities that we can cultivate is the quality of mindfulness because it helps us to see how things really are. When we see how things really are, we get to see clearly the nature of attachment over and over again as we see it in our lives, the nature of hatred over and over again as we see it in our lives, and the nature of the positive qualities of mind and what they bring. So, like Eric said, the Buddha didn't say, listen, believe believe us because we're saying it, or believe us because people have been saying it for 2,500 years. The Buddha said, Check it out for yourself. Be a light unto yourself and check it out. See what actually is happening. And when we do see what's actually happening, we see a changing process. 
we see a changing process and we see that there is nothing we can hold on to. The reason we keep saying, coming back to, come back to the breath, come back to what you're seeing, come back to what you're hearing, come back to what you're feeling, is not because those things are sacred, but it's because when we keep coming back over and over and over again, we start to see that there is really nothing to hold on to that it is changing. We come to see the moments when we are impatient and what they do, and the moments when we're patient. We come to see what happens when we're generous. We come to see what happens when we're greedy. It's our direct experience. It's not outside, it's inside. And then we get to see, wow, wow, there is actually something that I can do to support the factors that bring ease of being, to support generosity and patience and endurance and effort, mindfulness and loving-kindness. The, the, um, the Buddha said, monks and nuns, if for just the time of a finger snap a monk or nun produces a thought of loving-kindness, develops it, gives attention to it. Such is one rightly called a monk or nun. Not in vain does she or he meditate. And no other thing do I know, O monks or nuns, by which to such an extent good states, not or wholesome qualities, not yet arisen will arise, and unwholesome states, those that bring suffering, will wane as heedfulness or mindfulness. In her or him who is heedful and mindful, unwholesome states will fall, wholesome states will arise. Those that arise will continue to arise. Those that are that don't arise are um, those unwholesome states not arisen will continue not to arise. And the key factor is mindfulness. So coming to understand that faith really in the end depends on our own capacity to become skillful and to bring about wholesome states. Faith comes in our capacity, no matter who we are, no matter whether we're men or women, no matter whether we're rich or poor, no matter whether we have good jobs or lousy jobs, no matter which moment we find ourselves in, we always, always have this capacity to relate skillfully in the moment to what's happening. And to relate skillfully means to support the wholesome mental factors. And it doesn't matter how lost we get. It doesn't matter how many times we get lost in hatred, in rage, in anger, in sloth, in torpor, in anxiety. All those are considered unwholesome. It doesn't matter if it's been for months or years. 
the moment we find out, the moment we catch ourselves, that moment is good enough to have the intention to bring about wholesome states. The beauty of this practice is that we can begin anew each moment, no matter what has gone on previous to the moment we find ourselves in. We can connect with our intention. And that really is taking refuge. When we took refuge at the beginning of this retreat, we took refuge in our capacity to be skillful, and we took refuge in the fact that it's actually possible to practice being skillful. And that's what being skillful is. Whenever we find ourselves connected in whatever moment it is, we can connect with the intention to be skillful, to be kind, to be patient, to be generous. And when we lose it, then the next moment is not to judge it, but to say in this moment, how can I be kind, mindful, loving, patient, generous? And for each of us, the, the particular quality that's needed is different. Eric and I can't really, in the end, tell you. I mean, we can be guides. You are your own authority. You can begin to know, given the factors that are present in that moment, which of the qualities you need to call into being. For some, where there's a lot of sleepiness, it might be energy and effort. For some, where there's too much energy and effort, it might be calm and relaxation. For some, it might be that there's a whole lot of tightness or grabbing and renunciation, letting go. For others, it might be really being extra mindful, really supporting the quality of mindfulness. For some of us who are aversive types and incredibly critical all the time, it might be loving-kindness. It's different according to different conditions. There isn't, because <laughs> it's changing all the time, there isn't a set thing, you know? That's why we should be suspicious of these set programs of all you have to do is this, this, and this, and happiness is forever. No, it's changing all the time. And the only way you can know what's needed is to be present to yourself and to have the intention to bring wholesome qualities into being. There are going to be many times, many, many times when each one of us is going to be challenged in our lives. It's the nature of being alive. No matter how deep our meditation practice, no matter how diligently we have walked this path, we are, each one of us, going to be deeply challenged. There is never a reason not to have faith. There is never a reason not to have faith in our capacity to bring about the needed healing. There is never a reason not to have faith in our capacity to bring about a transformation. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, 
the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields. Tell me, what else should I have done? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So let's sit for a moment. May we each cultivate and live in our faith. May the transformations that come from each moment of effort and intention towards healing, may they bring about a transformation, an awakening where there is no suffering. May our faith become the fire that fuels us so that we can contribute to world peace.